Today's episode of Seven the Edge is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash setting edge. That's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. I'm popping bottles tonight. Come do for a fight if you're ready. Yeah. I'm popping bottles, baby. I'm popping bottles, baby. I'm popping bottles tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to episode 31 of Setting the Edge. Uh, today is just me. Justice is in class and uh, he's not going to be able to make it. But I'm joined with a very special guest, Field Yates of ESPN, co host of the Fancy, Fo- Fancy Focus podcast. Excuse me. How are you doing today, Field? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on and looking forward to uh, talking football just around the corner. Yeah, just around the corner. We're about one week away from training camp. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, so by the time it's posted on Sunday, we will actually be in the week where camp starts. So let's just dive right into it. And I think there's a lot of interesting storylines this season, and the offseason was littered with uh, a lot of interesting storylines. But the first point that I wanted to get on was with the rookie quarterbacks that were drafted. And throughout the draft season, there was you know, the quote-unquote big four uh, Deshaun Watson, Mitch Trubisky, Patrick Mahomes, and Deshaun Kaiser. And, you know, just kind of looking through what uh, the Texans and the Chiefs and the Bears gave up to get their quarterbacks in the Browns, in the Browns quarterback situation looking uh, a bit open. What do you think the chances that we see uh, those guys start more than, say, eight games apiece this year? Uh, so I think we have to probably do this by process of elimination. I don't think that Deshaun Kaiser will start more than eight games this year. Uh, I think Mitch Trubisky has a shot uh, at starting eight games this year. I think Deshaun Watson will start eight games this year. And I think there's no chance whatsoever that Patrick Mahomes starts eight games this year, absent Alex Smith getting injured. I think the Chiefs will just be competitive enough or too competitive to even consider a switch, even if Alex Smith is not the long-term answer for them at quarterback, which was the obvious indicator when you trade not just a first-round pick this year, but also a first-round pick next year to move up to slot number 10 overall. So I think the best best shot at a guarantee of eight-plus starts is Deshaun Watson, Uh, And I don't think it's going out on much of a limb. I mean, given how far along that franchise is in a lot of other spots, a lot of people view that quarterback position as basically the missing link. Whether it is Deshaun Watson that sort of takes them over the hump remains to be seen. But on paper, he certainly has the best shot at starting more than eight games. Yeah. And do you buy uh, Bill O'Brien saying that Tom Savage is going to be the the starter for the season? Because I just don't know if his play last year and what they gave up to go get uh, Deshaun Watson even really makes that a viable option. Yeah, it's hard for me to say with any level of conviction that last year's play from Tom Savage showed me something or didn't show me something about what he deserves to be going into the season. Right? I mean, the sample size was so small, and that, that right. offense was so woeful with everybody in her center. Um, however, what I would say is that um, based off what we saw from a draft capital standpoint, it sure, certainly feels like they are planning to – uh, start Deshaun Watson sooner rather than later. I just don't think it's good business to trade two first-round picks when you've already traded away a second-round pick next year to have a player that you're not intending to start uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I, I think uh, Mahomes is a different situation just because they have that money tied up to Alex Smith. And, 
you know, it, he's been the starter there for so long. It, it doesn't really make sense for him to start as a rookie. But uh, I, I'm interested to see how those four guys kind of play out their rookie year. So it, just kind of staying on the topic of those four quarterbacks, if you were uh, in a dynasty league or maybe you are in a dynasty league, which of the four guys do you like the best with the long-term uh, fantasy outlook? It's a good question, and I'm not sure there's a perfect answer. Like, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure that I'm entirely thrilled by any of these quarterbacks from a dynasty perspective, but I'll go with Deshaun Watson. Um, you know, there's such a a line that you balance when you're evaluating a guy's dynasty uh, prospects. One is just what does, he bring, what does he bring to the table as a player himself? The other is the, the situation that he has been surrounded by. Um, but I would say this, if I had to bet on one of these quarterbacks to be more likely than not to be successful in the NFL, I had to choose just one of them because we know that quarterbacks are no sure thing in the NFL. My answer would be Watson. I think the physical skills uh, were picked apart a little bit too much during the pre-draft process. He had a pretty average stretch during the regular season last year, but I don't think there was something uh, that he lacked with physical skills that led to that sort of pedestrian pedestrian is a strong word, but still, I mean, there was a stretch last year. He was, he was not Deshaun Watson. Um, but in the moments that you needed the most when you were Clemson, eh, there was really no doubt that number four was going to come through, uh, twice in the national championship game. Obviously they didn't win the first one, but, uh, I, I'd have a hard time betting against John, Deshaun Watson from the physical skill set standpoint. Also the personality, he's a yeah. ridiculously good kid out of this, out of this world, smart. And the kind of guy that like, you could put him in a basketball locker room and he could probably rally the team to feel like they were going to win the NBA championship, even if he couldn't shoot a free throw, much less a three-point shot. So he just sort of has the it factor uh, that gives me the most confidence in him. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting last year to see like Watson and Kaiser, they kind of had reverse seasons where Kaiser started off really strong. Everyone remembers that game against Texas when he lit them up for five touchdowns. He was making tight window throws and Watson kind of stumbled out of the gates to start the season, but he finished strong and and Kaiser kind of you know stumbled to the finish, but I, I think it's gonna be interesting to see like how those two play out, and especially with Kaiser uh, in a competition with Cody Kessler, who was a nice surprise for the Browns last season. But I'm not sure if he's you know like your long term starter. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. If there is a I don't I don't know that anybody on the Browns roster is a long term starter, and that's you know that they're like Browns fans are probably saying here we are again. Thanks for you know throwing salt in a 25 year wound, uh, <laughs> but still it's it's. Um, I don't agree with the idea of passing on a quarterback in consecutive seasons when you're picking the top two, right. or at least in your initial draft position. Um, however, what the Browns have done is, in theory, they have not married themselves to a quarterback like perhaps the Bears have done, like the Chiefs, like the Texans have done. Um, because if Mahomes or Trubisky or Watson is not a hit, then all those franchises have a major setback. That being said, like you got to give yourself a, a few dart throws at some point to see if you can hit the bullseye if you're the Browns. And I don't think that sort of – it's almost like patching it together with Band-Aids when you use a third-round pick in Cody Kessler, which was sort of viewed as a quote-unquote reach. Deshaun Kaiser in the second round, even though you were sort of lukewarm on him in the first place. Like I think if you loved Deshaun Kaiser, you would have taken him at the pick that you took Jabril Peppers, right? Um, like if right, you were fully yeah. convinced of him, you take him at 25 or 26, whichever that slot was. So uh, I'm not entirely sure that the Browns uh, have a long-term, not just quarterback answer, but even long-term quarterback plan on the roster. Like I think they might view all these guys as we'll see what happens at the end of 2017. Yeah, and another team that kind of had 
at least I thought it looked like they were looking towards the long term and looking at what had gone wrong in the recent past and how they could fix it in the future were the Carolina Panthers. And I think when you look at their offense last year, we've been doing season previews for uh, our website, settingedge.com, and we have been tracking, you know, completion percentage, yards per completion, interception percentage, stuff like that on offense. And what was interesting about the Panthers is, I mean, we all know Cam Newton, he completed 52.9% of his passes. So that was 32nd in the league, but they were second in yards per completion, which kind of fits with the mold of what you see from them, where they're flinging the ball down the field and just kind of praying Ted Ginn can hold on to it for a touchdown. But I thought that it was interesting to see them get uh, Christian McCaffrey and Curtis Samuel in the draft and hopefully kind of scaling that passing attack back a little bit. And you, I know Cam wasn't great in that zero to five range. I think Keen Fahey, who tracks uh, the quarterback catalog for football outsiders, he said that Cam was one of the worst zero to five yard passes in the league. But I really like getting... Christian McCaffrey and Curtis Samuel to kind of help Cam out. And I thought it was interesting that they just fired David Gettleman after he was trying this offseason, at least it looked like he was trying to rectify some of his past roster building mistakes. Yeah. I mean, the timing is just baffling, right? It's July 17th. You wake up that morning and no one's saying to themselves, yeah, I bet Dave Gettleman gets fired today. You (laughs) know, there had been no smoke whatsoever to lead you to believe there was a potential fire. Moreover, this is a team that two years ago steamrolled through the NFL regular season 15-1, 15-1, and one. they dominated the NFC playoffs, and they met their match in the Super Bowl. Is there shame in that? I would say not really. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember yesterday, not that I had to think that far back, but yesterday afternoon, I got some texts from people around the league, and there's frustration. And the frustration is, you know, what's the standard now for a general manager? What do you have to do to ensure job security? Uh, if three straight division titles, albeit one of them with a 7-8-1 and one record, is not enough, like, what's enough to get a new deal? Um, it's he, Has he been perfect? No, of no. course not. Kelvin Benjamin has had some, I would say, some peaks and valleys in his career. Uh, but you're also talking about a guy that has helped build and lock up some of the best players in football. I mean, that's not a stretch. The MVP in Cam Newton two years ago, Luke Keekley, Defensive Player of the Year, Kawan Short, one of the best interior disruptors there is. They found some key pieces now in Carolina, and all of a sudden you're having to go back to square one in some ways because it seems like you know, this is something that had a lot less to do with football and a lot more to do with the interpersonal side of the business, which I'm not ignoring, but you'd hope that people could find a way to meet in the middle on some of this stuff. Yeah, and it was it, I thought it was weird for them to fire him now, especially when you look at that offensive line. They were destroyed by injuries. I know – uh, Gino Gradkowski, their third string center, he was starting games to close the season. Then they got to a point where they had to kick Try Turner out to right tackle. And if you watch the Panthers Raiders game, I think we all know how, how that experiment went. Camille, oh, Camille yeah. Mack just dominated him at the end. So I, I just thought they kind of got stuck in a place last year where they were injured and they couldn't really get, uh, they couldn't really play offense the way they needed to because of those injuries. And then uh, I, like I, I thought that they had a really nice draft with McCaffrey, Samuel, and then Taylor Moten. And when you look back at like that 2015 team, that interior trio of Norwell, Ryan Khalil, and then uh, Tri Turner playing right guard, that was kind of one of the catalysts to what led that running game. And Norwell was fine last year, but Khalil got hurt and Tri Turner had to go to right tackle. So just it, it was the timing was weird. And I, I, I thought that like the, the mix of things that happened last year kind of led to them falling off the map. And I, I'm not sure, like, where do you think that they go from here? 
Uh, it's well, I, you know, not to oversimplify things, but I think that so much of what happens with them going forward is about what Cam Newton becomes once he gets back to full strength with his shoulder. Uh, you talked about some of the metrics earlier from Kean and, and others that have studied Cam. You know, you note that Cam is not an accurate thrower on the throws that people like you and I would be able to probably make with some level of regularity, right? I mean, it, like backyard football throws in some right. ways. Um, and touch is such a hard thing to quantify, touch and uh, pace of the football. Like, I don't think if you and I went out and had a you know, punt, pass, and kick competition against Cam Newton, we would, we would be embarrassed. Um, but you need to find a way to make the completable throws when you are not just an NFL quarterback, but the defending MVP. So is that something where, is it a fundamental error that Cam possesses in his skill set? Is it something where, you know, he was hurt last year and that is attributable to why that happened? Sorry, I'm getting texts here right now. And I, can't <laughs> I either have to turn off my uh, Skype or turn off the messages. But, um, you know, like what he did and what he didn't do, I should say, uh, last year and complete easy passes has to be correctable. There's just no way that you could simply not. I mean, there, there has to be a correctable way. He's too talented, too physically superior to almost every other quarterback in the league to not be better uh, than what he was last year. You mentioned it, 52.9% completion percentage, a number that I would have never guessed for Cam Newton going into 2016 after that incredible 2015 season. Yeah, and I, I think when we talk about regression, uh, just you know, either positive or negative, that that completion percentage is so low. I I I, I just don't see how anyone posts that back to back, especially Cam Newton. So I kind of like the Panthers as a team that kind of gets it back together, even with David Gettleman getting fired and kind of makes their way back up uh, the ranks of the NFC South. Now, some other teams that uh, I, I think are interesting in terms of teams that will rise and maybe fall. Uh, the Detroit Lions, we all know they made the playoffs you know, literally just by the skin of their teeth. They were coming back constantly week after week after week. And that, for some reason, I, I don't really like the moves they made this offseason. I thought they had some questions on their defensive line that didn't really get addressed. And, uh, you know, spending a first-round pick on a linebacker, as excellent as Gerard Davis may turn out to be, I thought that they had some other needs up front, and that's kind of where they struggled last year. So where do you like the Lions? Do you think they repeat their playoff success, or is this a year where those coin flip games kind of fix themselves? So first of all, sustainable football is what I think is should be every team's goal, and trailing in 15 out of 16 games and still making the playoffs is borderline impossible to do. So right. what they did last year, uh, trailing in 15 of 16 games in the fourth quarter is what I meant to say. Like That's really hard to do to still make the playoffs. Um, that being said, I would disagree on the Jared Davis pick um, because, uh, first of all, like the linebacker depth chart, especially after DeAndre Levy's health basically right. compromised his career, uh, became you know razor thin. And then second of all, like I think some of the woes they had defensively last year early on, because they sort of steadied the ship in some ways down the stretch, because they have an excellent defensive coordinator in Terrell Austin. I think he'll be a head coach when we're talking on this podcast at this time next year. Uh, but anyways... Um, like you got to have a guy that can just get guys lined up and get guys to do the right thing on a plan and play out basis. Uh, offenses are moving rapidly. At least some of them are. And certainly in that division, there's one in Green Bay that can do basically whatever it wants um, when it has a balanced running game, which which eluded Green Bay for part of last season. Uh, but Davis, I think, will help them get lined up. I think he'll also make a million tackles, uh, which can be a good thing and a bad thing for a linebacker. Um, but I think it'll help him as a quarterback, basically, of their defense. 
Uh, I'm assuming we say you wish they maybe figured out their defensive line a little more, maybe specific to either a pass rusher or maybe another big body to pair yeah. with the Harry Hiders and the Holodinadas of the world. Um, you know, I think the free agency, they, they clearly prioritize the offensive line, which would be hard to pick against. And then in the draft, um, you know, I always say, like, it's hard. You know, when you're picking in the 20s, it's always hard to fill the most immediate and pressing needs because they've got so many other teams that are going in front of you that are nabbing good players. Uh, but, yeah, the, the defensive line, if, if Ziggy Ansah is, you know, a non-factor again this year, and I know a lot of last year was because of the health, then this defensive line has, you know, very little shot to get much better compared to where it was in 2016. Yeah, and I, I think it's kind of interesting when you look at how a lot of teams like Seattle and Atlanta and uh, even like the Bears to an extent are building those defensive lines. A lot of those guys, they can really move. They can really run. And when you look at the lines up front, the only guy they have like that is is uh, is Ansa. I mean, Ashawn Robinson's more of your run stuffer. Lodi Nada's, he's, he's, I don't know, we don't even know how many more years he's going to play. So it's, just, it's kind of interesting, or not interesting, but weird to see they've only really... Uh, invested athleticism in Ansa, Darius Slay, and uh, Gerard Davis. So, like going out and getting Jalen Tabor, who ran a 4.6 at the combine, then a 4.7 as pro day. Like, do you, Are you worried about that pass defense at all? Pass defense, yes, to a degree. Uh, I think with, with, with uh, the, the secondary, uh, you know, both the cornerbacks from Florida this year that were drafted in the first, was it three rounds or two rounds? Yeah, first two rounds. Uh, so wherever they ended up, both of them were speed deficient. That was a major question mark. That was why Florida's pro day was so heavily populated with scouts because they want to say, listen, can, can these guys actually run Quincy Wilson and T's Tabor? Um, but neither one of them really ran well according to the hand clocks. So, but both of them have to be scheme fits. So yeah, I, I, I agree. Like it's a defense that probably needs to beef up its overall speed and athleticism. Uh, I think that's probably pretty mo- you know, NFL modern defense has to be one that can run. Uh, given how passing offenses are sort of dominating the league. And like a team like I thought, for example, really upgraded the speed in a lot of ways this year was Tennessee during the offseason, not just on offense, but on defense and special teams too. Detroit probably could use some of that. Um, yeah, I think teams are, you know, like the NFL is sort of cyclical, right? Like that's just the it's way it's always going to be, copycat league. But it's also going to be uh, teams catching up. Like you might just be a couple of years behind the eight ball. Uh, whereas Detroit's offense might be slightly evolved in sort of the, using the, the short passing game as basically its running game. Its defense probably has to catch up so it can keep up with offenses like its own. Yeah, and another team that kind of, or another team that I think is an interesting team for a potential uh, negative regression in wins is the Oakland Raiders, who also tried to upgrade their secondary when they went to uh, Gary and Conley out of Ohio State in the first round. Now, I, I do like their offense a lot, and it's hard not to when you look at that offensive line and getting Marshawn Lynch and pairing him with Jalen Richard and uh, DeAndre Washington, who they drafted last year. But do you think they, they've done enough on their defense, on the defensive side to, I, I guess, challenge for that top spot in the AFC West? Not even close. I don't know. I mean, well, certainly they could challenge in the division, but a true contender, like, you know, not to, again, not to oversimplify things, but, like, if, if you put that defense against Tom Brady and Gillette Stadium in January— I think it's pretty clear where the edge is there, right? Um, the defense, I mean, it's, it's JV. It's Other than Khalil Mack, it's JV. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bruce Irvin, yes, you know, a steady, uh, athletic, can sort of do a little bit of everything type linebacker too. Uh, but, you know, it's like three or four guys you really can count on on that defense and not much more than that. The depth is not there. That's the kind of team that, like in, in December – in January, when the rigors of the NFL season catch up to everybody, like imagine what that defense is going to look like if it has a couple of injuries or guys are playing hurt in December. Uh, pass, pass, 
uh, the pass defense just it doesn't scare me. It doesn't scare me a bit. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, Gary and Conley could very well turn out to be a nice pro, and we know there's a legal situation that's impacting his current contract status. Uh, but no, nah, I just I just have have a hard time talk, talk about linebacker depth issues. You know, if you look it up in the dictionary, it'll have a picture of the uh, the Raiders <laughs> logo right next to it. And what's interesting to me is they kind of remind me of the 2012 Falcons, where they mm. they had a great uh, a great offense, but the defense wasn't great, and they kind of lived and died on those like we talked with the Lions, those coin flip games. So the Falcons they ended up going on, uh, I believe it was 13 and three that season when they lost to the 49ers in the championship, and then the year after they were four and 12, just because. They didn't make the progress you want to see on the defensive side of the ball. Now, I don't think the Raiders are going to fall off that hard because I like their offensive lineup a lot better than that Falcons team. But just when you look at what they have on defense and what they brought in, I, I don't think it's I don't I'm not sure it's going to be enough to make them competitive in the postseason. And I wouldn't be surprised if they miss the postseason this year. Yeah, I mean, it's such a hard division, right? Like yeah. Oakland could very easily have 10 wins and be squeezed out of the postseason. We saw it last year with Denver, right? Like. That team was pretty good. Yeah, heck, even the Chargers were good last year. They just couldn't, you know, they were good for three and a half quarters, and they yeah. just, you know, the the bottom fell out from underneath them. Um, do I think Oakland will make the playoffs? Yeah, I do. But would I be stunned if they only win 10 games and don't? No, I wouldn't be stunned. It's just uh, the nature of the beast. And Derek Carr gives them a shot every single week, you know, profiles as a potential MVP candidate or MVP winner in future years. No doubt about that. The offensive line, as you mentioned, it's it's basically you know four mountain movers that you feel really good about from left tackle to right guard, and we'll figure out the right tackle situation. Um, but and they've got you know strong wide receivers, but there are holes to fill. And you know I, Ryan Grigson did not do a great job by any stretch managing the Colts roster once Andrew Luck got his contract, and it's going to be a challenge for Reggie McKenzie, who I have a lot of faith in as a GM, but it's going to be a major challenge now now that you've got guys like Gabe Jackson. And also, of course, Derek Carr paid, and eventually Khalil Mack paid as well. Yeah, and uh, the last team I wanted to talk to you about in terms of a team that I think makes a potential rise are uh, the Chicago Bears. And I I really like that front seven. When you look at Akeem Hicks, Pernell McPhee, Leonard Floyd had a nice rookie season, Willie Young, like they have some guys that can rush a passer. And I think if you can get the baseline quarterback play, not whatever Mac Barkley was giving them towards the end of the last season, I think this is a team that could be, I mean, not a playoff team, but feisty within their own division. Like, if I, I wouldn't be surprised if they gave the Lions and the Li- the Lions and the Vikings and the Packers, you know, some close games because I do like their ability to rush a passer. And Jordan Howard had a breakout rookie season too. So, wh- where where do you think Mike Glennon kind of? Br- do you think he brings stability to this offense where they can just kind of be a neutral unit? I have actually talked myself more into the Bears' quarterback plan since it took place initially I had the same reaction everybody did which was like what the hell are they thinking um but it sort of lines up where philadelphia was last year in this regard uh, philly went into the season knowing that if sam bradford played really well last year in philadelphia then he'd have one year left on his contract and become a tradable commodity then you'd have carson wentz and then in the meantime you also had chase daniel you know, sort of the, you know, the hold the water type quarterback who could, no matter what the circumstances were, like if you were in it, he could keep you kind of competitive. And if you weren't competitive at all, he could be the, the guy that groomed Carson Wentz. So if Glennon plays really well, the Bears probably trade him after this year. If Glennon plays really poorly, well, then it underscores the need they already had for a quarterback. So it was a good thing they drafted Mitch Trubisky in the first place. 
Uh, I agree with you. I like the front seven, and they're sort of one of the athletic sort of hybrid defensive front sevens that we were just talking about. They've got guys that have some pop to them. They've got some length to them, and they certainly have some speed. Um, you know, one thing I would say, and this is sort of like the anti-NBA theory, like I'd be hard-pressed to find too many NBA teams that aren't in like a really crummy cap situation going forward, but the Bears actually did a pretty good job of mostly signing guys to one-year deals, either one-year deals, period, or deals that had outs after the first year. So let's just say that none of these guys pan out. Well, then you know something? You cut them after a year, which in the NFL, I'm not saying I like to see players get cut, but it's the way that it works. That's the way the NFL system is set up, that you know, if Marcus Cooper struggles one year into his three-year contract, you start to evaluate, all right, is he worth bringing him back next year? The answer is no. You cut him with minimal punitive damage uh, on the sal- salary cap, whereas in the NBA, you know, like, let's just, I'm just making this up, but let's just say Gordon Hayward doesn't pan out after a season. You could be saying to yourself, now we owe him whatever it is, $30 million a year for the next three seasons. Yeah, and I, I, I just think that when you look at the guy, like the young guys they have on that defensive line, Eddie Goldman's a guy for guy. He was banged up last year, but as a rookie, he played he played really well. So they just kind of seem like a, a group that has a lot of upside. And then you look at on offense too. They had Cody Whitehair who played good as a rookie. So I, I think they've got like a nice young core in place. And with John Fox and Vic Fangio, you're always gonna look competent. You know, I, I think what kind of dropped them except off. For last year. Yeah, except for last year. And I, I think I think what happened with them was Matt Barkley. Or Brian Horry getting hurt, and then Matt Barkley just kind of imploding. Like that four interception game he had against the Lions, I think was just you know you, you just can't win with that type of sustainable play. But kind of sticking with younger guys who have a chance to break out, I think that this year has a lot of second year players that are interesting. And on offense, uh, the guy that I'm looking at is the Falcons tight end Austin Hooper, who if you look at uh, Football Outsiders DVOA metric for tight ends with at least 25 targets, he was the most second efficient tight end in the league behind Rob Gronkowski. Now, no one thinks that Hooper is Gronk or Jimmy Graham on that caliber uh, tight end, but I do think that he has a chance to wind up as a tight end one in fantasy. So what do you think about his progression as the tight end one in Atlanta moving forward? Yeah, you're right. The sample size, sample size is pretty small. So if you're evaluating him based off what he did last year, some of it or a lot of it is a projection. To put it mildly, the, the, the Falcons are very enthused about Austin Hooper. High expectations internally are, are really high. Uh, going into the second season, a lot of players make their biggest leap from year one to year two. It's the first time you have a full off season under your belt. You're stronger. Heck, you know what you're doing in terms of getting around the facility. I always tell people, like, when you're in the league, the first thing you do is you figure out, like, where the bathroom is, where the cafeteria is. People are like, you know, is he picking up the route concepts? I'm like, the route concepts? He doesn't even know where the, you know, where the trainer's room is. Like, if he needs tape, where does he have to go? Um, so Hooper, uh, beyond that, uh, Hooper w- went to Stanford, as we know. And Stanford, because it's on a quarter system, players cannot take part uh, in OTAs. So he was limited last offseason. You know, he spent basically May and June away from his rookie counterparts who were getting up to speed. You know, Keanu Neal, who's kind of a rare dude as it is. Like he's like such a uncommon guy in terms of his pro readiness and all that. Um, but still like he at least didn't have to miss a bunch of the OTAs and stuff, uh, which would have helped tremendously for Hooper. Uh, but I think this year there's a vacancy there, right? Like I know J- Jacob Tammy was, you know, finished season last year on IR, but still that's, you know, from the outset, it looks like this is Hooper's job. Uh, I wouldn't say unto himself, but he's a big factor, that's for sure. And moving over to the defensive side of the ball, one guy, when I was doing uh, the Bleacher Report stuff for NFL 1000, I was the defensive tackle scout. And Vincent Valentin for the Patriots really caught my eye. And I thought, 
he started off strong and he struggled with the ankle injury, but I, I thought he finished the season pretty well. So how do you see him kind of fitting in that defensive tackle rotation with Malcolm Brown and Allen Branch? Yeah, a guy that was sort of, you know, tabbed as a reach in the third round by the Patriots who always marched with the beat of their own drum. And that's how NFL teams really should be because scouting is far from perfect. It's imperfect, as a matter of fact. Um, but uh, he was, again, he was viewed as a reach. Uh, I think Bill Belichick probably deserves the benefit of the doubt by now. Uh, but he gave him pretty solid snaps. Is a big body guy that carries and takes up space so that players like Dante Hightower... Uh, and last year after they traded Jamie Collins, the rotation of a variety of linebackers that also included Kyle Van Noy, Landon Roberts, et cetera, they can run around and make make tackles. Uh, I thought he was a pretty solid player for them. I think between him, Branch, and to a degree Malcolm Brown as well. I'm still sort of figuring out how Malcolm Brown fits into their rotation going forward. Um, but, you know, solid player, but maybe not, uh, maybe hasn't been dominant yet at the NFL level. I think those three guys give them some good meat in the middle of that defensive line uh, that you don't want any of them playing, you know, 70% of the snaps. But if each one of them is playing, you know, 35 to 45% of the snaps, you're going to get an effective three-man rotation. And I, I thought that you know, the Patriots, they got a guy that was really high in the draft and Derek Rivers from Youngstown State. And when you look at how he tested athletically, like that's the ideal guy you want off the edge. So getting him and pairing him with those guys inside and uh, Trey Flowers on the on the other edge, that's a I think that's a defensive line group that's really good that's not talked about enough just because I, I, I think we tend to downplay the supporting cast of the Patriots just because, you know, Belichick and Brady deservedly get a lot of the spotlight. But I think this is a really talented defensive line that when you look at all the bodies they have in place uh, and they added Coney Ely too from the Panthers, it's a lot of guys that can do a lot of different things, and when they play with the lead, they should be able to to disrupt. So what what Patriots rookie are you excited to see this year? I think River is probably the only one that you say with a lot of confidence uh, that you think could be a factor for them, uh, only because you know they only picked four guys in the draft, uh, and he was their top guy in the third round. And you're right. I mean, uh, athletically, the, the, the charts suggest he's going to be just fine in the NFL. Uh, and they needed somebody off the edge because you mentioned Trey Flowers, you mentioned – uh, also, Coney Ely, but uh, you know Rob Ninkovich is not getting any younger. That's for sure. Right. Um, and you know Coney Ely is going to be sort of an interesting test, right? Like he was the most dominant player other than Von Miller in the Super Bowl two years ago, and he's got a different build than your typical edge rusher, right? He's a little like he's like 270 pounds. But you don't see a lot of guys like that that are getting you know they're more in the 240, 250 range. Um, at his apex, I think he can be a solid starter for them. But he also was traded for a reason by Carolina for not a lot. I mean, it was just an eight-round draft slot movement. Um, but I think that Rivers has a chance, even if it's not right away, but at some point to become uh, a regular rotation player for the Patriots as a rookie. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on to some of these mailback questions. The first one uh, I have for you that I, I didn't put on the sheet, but what's the most... I guess, exciting story that you covered that never really turned out to be or a lead that you followed that never really materialized into uh, a story? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, man, you know, the NFL is not like the NBA where we have a lot of hypothetical or close to it trades. Right. So I can't think of any trades that nearly went down but did not. Um, and in terms of coaching hires... Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's, it's, it's a good question, and I wish I had a better on-the-spot answer. Um, 
You want to come back to it at the end? I was gonna say, you know, like there was, you know, the Brandon Cooks trade uh, ended up obviously coming together this offseason, but there was a ton of speculation in league circles about him getting dealt last year uh, before the trade deadline. So that was one that, you know, I'd sort of been tracking and, and hearing there was a possibility of something happening. Now, it ended up happening six months later or whatever it was, but that was an interesting sort of like, all right, you're pausing. You don't want to put anything out there that's not really, you know, it's, it's it, until it happens, nothing's official, nothing's really, you know, like I'm not sure I deal in a lot of speculation, but um, it was interesting once it went down, and I think a lot of people look at it as a pretty favorable deal uh, for the Patriots, uh, given the price paid. Yeah, that was definitely one of the big moves of the offseason. Uh, so next question from uh, my friend, or our friend, at 14 Team Mocker. Does Field have me muted? If not, how can you stand following me? Also, has he given my marriage proposal from three years ago any more thought? Thank you. Yeah, not not a big muter on my end. I you know I don't I don't really bother with that. Um, so no, you know something. I think I'm close to following like a thousand people on Twitter now. Uh, Nine hundred and sixty-seven. So I would say that while I try to keep up with as much as I can, there's a lot of content that gets missed day to day, uh, and uh, so I, I think that probably explains uh, the tolerance I have for people that, uh, if he's suggesting that his Twitter timeline would just annoy me, if that's what he's sort of getting at. What about the marriage proposal? Have you given even uh, any thought? Gonna have to pass on that one as well. Uh, <laughs> very happy with my girlfriend Chapin, who treats me uh, very well. There we go. Uh, next question from at Mark Schofield, who runs an excellent site called Inside the Pylon. What was uh, your favorite thing to eat when the Wesleyan squad rolled into Abdos on game day morning with <laughs> Coach Hauser? That's funny. Yeah, I played football at Wesleyan back in 2009 and 2010. You know, I over I always overate at breakfast uh, during my sports career, which probably explains why I had so little success. But eggs, French toast, <laughs> those are the two. Those are the two you couldn't go wrong with. All right. Uh, what, what what position did you play at Wesleyan? I was a uh, linebacker my freshman year and a sophomore. Uh, and then in my sophomore year, I trans- transitioned to safety. So, but I was mostly a special teams guy. Yeah, uh, special teams needs a role too. They need their love too. There you go. Right. right. Uh, next question from Ryan underscore Kieran. Who is the worst fantasy player at ESPN? Ooh, there's a good question. Can I vote myself? Are you no, bad at no. fantasy? No, I, just, I I hope not to be bad. Uh, <laughs> You know what I would say is really what I think being a bad fantasy football player really comes down to someone who doesn't pay attention to their league. Yeah. Because I don't necessarily believe that some people are like, you know, superiorly queer, or, you know, have a better qualified uh, skill set to be dominant in every single league. Like there are leagues where I stink one year and then I come back with a lot of the same squad and bounce back and look great. So um, there are certain leagues that I care about the most. And. At least lately, I don't think I've finished in like the bottom third in them, but there's certainly been some years where I've been like, oh yeah, that's not how we drew it up right there. So I don't know that I have a worst football fantasy football player at, at ESPN, though. Yeah, I have a home league with some just some of my friends from around the area, and it's frustrating, man, because they, they rag on me because they don't, because like, oh, you write about football, you suck at fantasy football. But like, but like when you have the head to head matchups, I finished. Uh, Third in the league in points scored, but by far the worst in points against. So really? I'm like, I, you know, that's that's not something that I can really control. But not I, on- I, and like like you said, I think people who are bad at fantasy just don't really care or aren't meticulous enough with checking their roster. Like as long as you put some guys in the starting lineup, I feel like you should be competitive at least. No doubt. Uh, all right, next question from at Evan Sowers. What's it like being? 
being Boston's guy and working for the NFL, do you root for the Patriots or try to be more non-biased? Uh, well, so first of all, Boston's home, so I love being able to be based here. Um, and, you know, I don't have a team that I root for. People always ask that question. Uh, I didn't grow up with a specific team that I followed most closely. I actually followed Ohio State football the most growing up because my mom is from the Columbus area, and I used to go out to games each year with my grandfather. Um, but, um, you know, I have certain teams that I'm, you know, I'm trying to be comfortable with all of them. Uh, but certainly given where I'm from, the team's success, and how much coverage they get because of that success, I certainly, uh, you know, take pride in being particularly familiar with, the, with, with all the things the Patriots do uh, and trying to stay on top of that as much as possible. All right. Uh, and the last question from at Rob DFB. Who is the most dominant player in the league in terms of winning his matchup play in play in and out? And why is the answer Aaron Donald? Ooh, there's a, that's a good one right there. Yeah. Uh, a good answer is Aaron Donald. Listen, I would say that uh, some of the normal like things you hear about Aaron Donald apply, right? Like ridiculous first step. He's got tremendous power. Like I think he probably could win with just his hands, but he's also got the power through his core. He's got the power, uh, you know, through his through his legs, his bottom half. Um, I would say that one of the things that I've noticed about him that um, really uh, makes him different is there are a couple guys in the league that came into the league and were tabbed as undersized um, or you know size deficient. He's one, obviously. Melvin Ingram is another one that I always think of. And the thing is, you can you, being undersized can actually work in your advantage. Like you think about a guy like Melvin Ingram and what he can do to a left tackle that is, you know, like Jared Valdir, who's now playing right tackle, but he's like six foot eight. Well, if Melvin Ingram goes underneath Jared Valdir, like what can Jared Valdir do other than trying to just fall forward, you know, basically pull Ingram down to the ground and just take the, the holding penalty? There's nothing he can do. So Donald is so dominant with his power, with explosiveness. He's got such good counter moves. He's got great instincts, you know, which is a hard thing to quantify, but you can certainly see it when you watch him. And he uses his leverage to his advantage. So I would say Donald would be the one. And if we talk about an offensive player, to me, it's Gronk. Um, you know, I just I don't think we can take for granted what Gronk represents and what he brings to that tight end position. He is just built unlike any other player we've ever seen there. Who are some of your favorite dominant players to watch you know, growing up? Um, that's a good, another good question right there. Well, you know, at the beginning of my life, this is probably before I even remember it, you know, Lawrence Taylor was sort of at the apex of his career, uh, when I was just a kid. Uh, but some other dominant players, you know, in different way, it, it dominates in different ways, but I loved watching Daryl Green, uh, you know, the speed, like, you know, not, not a one trick pony, but he's sort of known for one thing in his speed. That would be certainly someone that comes to mind in terms of a dominant player. I love watching Neil Smith and Derek Thomas. The AFC West was so loaded with pass rushers back in the day. Those are some guys that I really enjoyed watching. Uh, and then the entire Dallas offensive line during the Emmett Smith sort of era of the early 90s, you know, like that group was ridiculous, uh, you know, sort of a close facsimile to what they are today. So those are some of the guys that I would say come to mind. And then I would, you know, I always enjoyed watching Brett Favre. I, I just enjoyed the fact that he was having as much fun on the field as anybody else. And then last but probably not least was Warren Moon. Like mm -hmm. the dude was built like he video game numbers were like it was like plug him in and just expect him to throw for 300 yards uh he was such a fun guy to watch yeah growing up around here uh ed reed i i'm a falcons yeah. fan but i love watching ed reed like uh, ed reed and darrell revis were two of my favorite guys like when they were at their peak it was unbelievable to watch yep and uh randy moss too randy moss oh yeah there. of course and uh yep. i remember i think it's uh the football life that about 
uh, Bill Belichick when him and Brady were watching film and talking about Ed Reed and how oh he's just guessing out there and uh, he's he's right more than he was right more than he was wrong. So I, I love is. guys that kind of have that innate feel for the game, like Brett Favre, Ed Reed, Michael Vick to an extent. And I think those yeah. are the guys I, I enjoy watching the most. No doubt. With you there. Yeah. Uh, so before we let you go, do you have anything you're working on that you want to let the people know about? If people are listening to this right now uh, before July 31st, uh, be ready for July 31. That's when we get going with the Fantasy Focus Football Podcast. Uh, that's going to be daily, Monday through Friday, as it always is during the season. But we ramp back up in what from the time we're recording it right now, 13 days. So very much looking forward to that this season. Are you guys going to do that 24-hour fantasy extravaganza again? That'll be coming again. I don't know the specific date, but I have I have heard that it's coming again. Yes. Is Stu Gatz going to be there again, causing a ruckus I, up there? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah, he's hilarious. So uh, that's going to conclude episode 31 of Setting the Edge. Thank you to Field for coming on. Make sure you guys stay updated with our season previews, which should be wrapping up this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with, I think, Stephen Godfrey of SB Nation to help. Uh, help us break down the college football season. So thanks for rocking with us through these first 31 episodes and we'll be back next week.